people are like, well, what did you gain? Well, what did you get from looting? I think that as long as we're focusing on the what, we're not focusing on the why. And that's my issue with that. As long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. And some people are like, well, those aren't people who are legitimately angry about what's happening. Those are people who just want to get stuff. Okay, well then, let's go with that. Let's say that's what it is. Let's ask ourselves why in this country in 2020, the financial gap between poor blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance that people feel like their only hope and only opportunity to get some of the things that we flaunt and flash in front of them all the time is to walk through a broken glass window and get it. Why are people that poor? Why are people that broke? Why are people that food insecure, that clothing insecure, that they feel like they're only shot, that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. And then people want to talk about, well, there's plenty of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got it on their own. Why can't they do that? Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child, I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. If I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money. I didn't allow you to have anything on the board. I didn't allow for you to have anything. And then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa. That was Rosewood. There are Those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property and they burned them to the ground. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your Monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood. How can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the fuck 
do I give a shit about burning the fucking football hall of fame, about burning a fucking target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is, the rate for incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, that we're no longer incarcerating the individual. We're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration is now about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now, it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who are growing through the American prison move of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time either at the state or federal prison level, if they've dropped out of high school, is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling has become a normal life for them. And that's only really happened in the last 10 years. Mass incarceration is modern day slavery. Simple as that. Slavery in America traumatized and devastated millions of people Husbands and wives, parents and children, could not protect themselves from being sold away from each other. Enslaved families were separated at an owner's or auctioneer's whim, never to see each other again. Mass incarceration, the entire concept behind incarcerating people, has been set up to target African Americans. Even as the Civil War raged, slave trading in Montgomery flourished well into the mid-1860s. After the Confederacy surrender in 1865, Congress passed the 13th Amendment, which prohibited slavery nationwide, except as a punishment for crime. But in many slave states, slavery did not end. It simply evolved. If we look back to when the 13th Amendment was first written, when African-Americans were first free from slavery, it says clearly in context in the text of the United States Constitution that all men are free unless a jailed and used as a form of slavery. Jail is literally a form of slavery. It does everything in its power to make sure that Black men do not have the same resources, opportunities, and privileges of white men and other, and other men of color. And we always talk about, you know, how patriarchy um, oppresses women, and it, it certainly does. But I think what people do not realize is patriarchy is not a just, it's not just about oppressing women, it's also about oppressing the most vulnerable men. And in the context of white supremacy, the most vulnerable men are black men. 
There are 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's currently incarcerated. That's about one in nine. Research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioral problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. There's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than they are among girls. And it's a very real risk here. So much so that incarceration becomes an inheritance trait. As a country, our underlying issue is that we've chosen prison as a way to respond to the problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem. We've chosen the responsive, the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. You go to like black statistics online and you look at stats, you know, up until, you know, basically the late 1960s, early 1970s, you know, black people were more likely to uh, have stable homes. Um, black men were more likely than any other uh, group of males in America to be married, you know, and have intact families. I mean, but then, you know, 1971 comes and, and Richard Nixon declares the war on drugs and, and says it's public enemy number one. And from 1970 on, you see, you know, the black family, you know, continuously decline. You see marriage rates among black people declining. We went from being the most married to now we're the least married 50 years after the war on drugs started. I mean, so I think, you know, mass incarceration, which most black men that are locked up, it's not for violent crimes, it's, you know, for, for drugs, whether it's possession or distributing. I mean, so the war on drugs specifically has um, tore up the black family and the black community. Jails and, you know, prisons are hyper-violent, right? So like a lot of black men don't even come back. You know, and just like, or they come back really traumatized with PTSD. Uh, like, and they've been out of work for so long that they aren't even able to function in society when, when they're released and end up right back. That's another thing. So I was talking to this dude. He was like, yeah, I've been in jail. And so, you know, I was kind of like, well, hold on now. But I, I asked him, I had to catch myself and be like, well, why did you go to jail? And he explained to me, of course, the reasons why he went to jail were he was black. He was just black in the wrong time at the wrong place. So it wasn't even anything of like, he killed somebody or anything like that. He just got caught while being black at the wrong time. So then that, then that now his mindset or somebody who went in there before who wasn't doing anything wrong or, or didn't, you know, um, break the rules or anything. Now they get caught up. Now they're putting this, now, now that's a part of their identity. Now they can't get a job. Education attainment and mass incarceration go hand in hand. They, the United States, even you look worldwide, a lot of these countries have used jailing and mass incarceration as a way to hold minorities, specifically African-Americans behind um, in this world. People don't realize uh, there's a such thing, this, this myth of the school to prison pipeline is real. People are students, particularly young black students, black male students, are being pushed out of school and they're going straight into the prison system. Even if you look at how mass incarceration is set up, I mean, they, they build jails and jail beds based off of reading in, in elementary school. Um, so it just shows that the system was really set up for African-Americans to fail. And the system is working exactly how they planned it to, to work and how it was written to work. 
There are no wealthy black or brown people in America. We got some rich ones. We don't got no fucking wealth. People go, oh, what's the difference? Here's the difference. Shaq is rich. The white man that signs his check is wealthy. Structural, institutional, and systemic racism broadly refer to the system of structures that have procedures or processes that disadvantage racial minorities and particularly black people. It refers to the rules, practices, and customs once rooted in law with residual effects that reverberate throughout society, each with their own nuances. A good example of systemic racism is redlining, a system once used by banks and the real estate industry that literally outlined the neighborhoods where people of color lived in red ink. If you lived inside of the red lines, loans were considered risky and banks were less likely to give loans or even invest. The practice was banned in 1968, but the impacts live on, preventing black families from amassing wealth at the same rate as their white neighbors on the other side of that red line. Need proof? According to the Federal Reserve, the net worth of a typical white family is $171,000. That's 10 times greater than that of a black family. Homes in black neighborhoods are generally and historically worth less than white homes because the developers and businesses that make a neighborhood, well, a neighborhood, are less likely to be there. That means the tax base is lower too, which has a trickle-down effect. Less tax dollars for schools means fewer kindergarten classes, fewer qualified teachers, fewer AP classes. That leads to lower graduation rates from high school and even fewer graduates from college. This is in part caused by the school-to-prison pipeline that disproportionately impacts people of color. Institutional racism is more narrowly defined as the overt and covert forces blocking people of color from accessing the same opportunities as white people. Many of these children may benefit from additional educational and counseling services. Instead of getting the help they need, they're isolated, punished, or incarcerated. I think that you have to look at our wealth position and our poverty position to really have an honest conversation about education uh, and how it's impacted us. You know, education was never for us. Public education was never made for us, right? You know, this country had to force us, was forced to integrate so that, you know, Black Americans could have an equal education. And remember before that, the, the, there was a law, like they, America decided that separate but equal was better. These things are not normal. These are demonic things that happen that society just accepted as normal, right? So you went from separate but equal. Um, and, and to me, these have little to do with family structure and more to do with systemic oppression and relationship to public education. Because remember, Black Americans were not allowed to read or write for fear that we would run away, revolt, take over. You know, you know, so you're com we're coming from a perspective where we weren't allowed to read or write. And some of us um, did anyway at the risk of life and limb. Right. And so. The education system, the public education system has been really detrimental um, to 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 black folks. It's created this two Americas kind of system that we that we continue to work in. And that even you can kind of see that today in the charter school versus the regular public school situation that we have going on in, in urban cities across America.
Parents at Maria Montessori Academy in North Ogden were sent an email informing them that they would have the option to opt their child out of Black History Month lessons and events that were planned throughout the month of February. Now they're telling us the school is rescinding that offer. I'm not exactly sure why anyone thought that they had to send out a document saying, you know, I don't want my child to participate in this activity. That's what the document says. Jamie's daughter has been a student at Maria Montessori Academy for seven years. And this is the first year that anything has ever been discussed about Black History Month. Lex Scott, founder of Black Lives Matter Utah, says the decision to allow parents to opt out is appalling. You can't opt out of Black History. Black History is American history. In an email sent to parents, the school's director, Micah Hirakawa, says he is deeply saddened and disappointed that parents would opt their children out of Black History Month curriculum, and added that as an Asian American whose great-grandparents were thrown into internment camps, he values teaching students about the quote, mistreatment, challenges, and obstacles that people of color in our nation have had to endure. It's just heartbreaking that uh, anyone who runs a school would believe that it is okay in any way, that it is acceptable in any way to try to ban talking about black history. You've got separate but equal, and then you've got a full integration of public schools, which doesn't really work out the way that it is supposed to, right? And so on top of integrating the schools, you've got the curriculum of the schools, which is very Eurocentric and um, designed to indoctrinate people. Right. So in a state like Arizona, where there are a lot of Mexican people, it's illegal to teach Mexican-American studies. In Texas, they refer to slaves as workers in the history books. And so that kind of manipulation of information uh, and manipulation of history is what really makes the curriculum part of the education system um, really difficult um, to deal with. The other day I was walking down the hallway at Lakeview Elementary School to give a teacher a retiring gift. I looked up onto the wall and saw a BLM poster and an Amanda Gorman poster. In case you don't know who that chick is, she's some girl who did a poem at Biden's so-called inauguration. I was so mad. I was told two weeks ago at this very meeting spot, no politics in school. I believed what you said at this meeting. So at lunch, I went up to my principal to tell him about the BLM poster and that I wanted it down. He said it's not coming down. I was like, yeah, it is, because the school board said on May 25th, no BLM or politics in school. He said, that's weird. They were the, one who, they were the ones who made them. I was stunned. When I was here two weeks ago, you told us to report any BLM in our schools. Apparently, you know they're in our schools because you made the signs. I said there should be no BLM in schools, period. It does not matter the color you make the posters and the font you use. We all understand the meaning. It is a political message about getting rid of police officers, rioting, burning buildings down while King Governor Welch just sits on his throne and watches. We all know. Changing the font or the color of posters does not change the meaning. I am nine years old and I know that. You expect me to believe that you did not know what you were doing by making these posters? Come on, people. I do not judge people by the color of their skin. I, I don't really care what color their hair, skin, or eyes is. I judge by the content or the way they treat me. The administrative part of schooling, attendance, uh, discipline, 
actually educating the child, there's another layer of oppression for us because as poor people, we don't have the same access to resources. So our children go to school hungry. They can't think, might not be able to concentrate. Then they get deemed as disruptive and then they get punished. So now you've just gotten punished for being poor and hungry at school, a place where you're supposed to be learning. You see what I'm saying? In 2016, researchers at Yale showed teachers this video clip of four preschool students. Their instructions, look for misbehavior and click when you see it. The study was kind of deceptive. None of the kids in the video actually misbehaved. The researchers were using eye tracking software. What they actually wanted to study was who the teachers were watching. Both black and white teachers spent significantly more time watching the black boy in the video. This study showed that even preschool teachers can treat kids differently based on their race without even realizing it. Look elsewhere in the U.S. school system, and you'll see this show up in other ways, like at this middle school in Bryan, Texas. They gave students tickets for offenses like disrupting class or using profanity. Black students were four times more likely than white students to receive those tickets. Nationwide, black boys miss way more school due to suspensions than any other group. And this can start a kind of chain reaction. Missing weeks of school due to suspensions makes students much more likely to drop out. Without a diploma, you're much less likely to earn a living wage and much more likely to be incarcerated. All this missing school is helping to drive the highest poverty and incarceration rates in the developed world. We're black here, right? We've all seen one of the homies get kicked out of class because he wore a hat that was out of dress code or his pants were sagging or uh, we've seen a homegirl get kicked out of class because she was texting on her phone, right? And, they, and in a lot of times that will go to science would lead to suspension, right? So these minor issues have major impacts on students because now that student's not in class. The whole purpose of going to school is, is receiving the education. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be educated at home. <laughs> you need to be in school, right? Seven in the morning. Seven in the morning. The education system has impacted the Black community just as it was intended. The education system was never developed to support uh, Black people. It was always a tracking system in which the whites were able to and pushed to go to a traditional college where blacks were pushed to go to a more vocational route and that they would be used to, to provide um, skills and services versus using their intellect to better the community. And so the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It was not um, designed to support us in um, an academic setting per se. Yeah, unfortunately. And you know what? I hate to say this. I end up having this, you know, angst every semester that a lot of my lower ones are Blacks. Happens almost every semester. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, 
get some really good ones, but they're also usually some that are just plain at the bottom. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, if my mother didn't go to college and didn't learn a decent wage in order to save money to pay for me to go to college, but I have a desire to go to college, well, now I'm going to college and coming out with a loan debt. So not only am I getting the education that I deserve, but now I'm becoming a slave to the debt that I have incurred. And these are things that are happening across the Black community. So even though we think we're getting ahead and that we're being a part of middle-class society, we are left with the burden of having extreme amount of student loan debt, which then prevents us from being able to provide a, an academic or an educational foundation for our children. And so again, if it's not one way, it's the other. No, I think the school system is terrible. I, I will, I've always been adamant about this. I've always said this. I think it's the worst thing that can happen to the younger generation because they forced the, ide the ideology that higher education immediately equates to success when it doesn't. Literally, there's people in our community that are neck deep in debt and still working the same job they could have had without the degree. To me, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense whatsoever. Then on top of that, all the things that they learned in school, they could have learned outside of school, especially being a communication major that I am. Like literally, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. Um, it's definitely teaching you. It's teaching us how to, I guess, subjugate ourselves to these systems that happen around us. Education is key because it can help you break out of a cycle and it can inform you of why the cycle is there. So in teaching kids that came from a different part of the city than I did, it really opened my eyes to not the fact that like, oh, I'm better than them, but it opened my eyes to the fact that why do these children not have the same things that I have in school? Why don't they have, why don't all of them have textbooks? You know, there's, there's no surprise that black schools suffer more than white schools because they use the house taxes the home, the, the housing taxes to pay for um, for the schools in those areas. Well, we know that there's an inequity in that system and no one's doing anything to change it. Now we're bright and we're brilliant. We've sent people to the moons and we can't fix this problem. So it's a problem that our society does not want to fix, that we need to address and soon. The mold, the carpet, the walls itself, the classrooms, the teachers, everything that you need in the school or could use in the school is not there. At this point, it's just like a daycare for teenagers. Students at Block High School in rural Louisiana say conditions at their school are so bad that they're struggling to get an education. And you see right here, if you look closely, it got some um, the water that's been leaking. That's turning the mold, like when you go in the classrooms, you can smell it. That building there, B building, it is completely unsafe, but we still do go in there as far as using the auditorium. These are the textbooks they were given at the beginning of the school year. This is, this is a systemic problem. It's not just black kids don't want to learn. Black kids can't learn. Not only are the schools under-resourced, but young people, black people, black kids are coming to schools hungry, staying up all night because their father's not in the home. And we just talked about that. So mom is having to work two or three jobs just to put food on the table. So the oldest child has to stay up and make sure his siblings 
are eating dinner and put to bed on time, when does he or she have time to do their homework? So the system does not support um, all of these, you know, systemic issues that are happening within our community and it lands itself in the education center. And then schools are being forced to deal with not only the education, but the social ills that come with every young person that comes into their doors. America's foster care system. It could be a lifeline for some 400,000 kids who desperately need a place to call home. And everyone keeps selling me, it's not that bad. But sometimes the people who volunteer to take these kids in do it for the wrong reason. New allegations tonight of outrageous abuse in the foster care system. Some are calling this a case of kids for cash. I remember when I was trying to get financial aid for college, they were trying to tell me I didn't qualify. I'm like, well, I've been in foster care. But they were trying to say I wasn't. I had to like find some paperwork when my grandmother said I was a guardian when I was locked up because they basically said because it wasn't through the state of California, it was just through the county, I wasn't an official foster care. So I got one of the state of California papers when I was locked up, they had my grandma as a guardian on there, signed it, got a stamp, took it, and they had no choice but to accept that. But it's just like, so foster care, it's like, you would think foster care would help you be more qualified for financial aid, but here I am, it's like having to prove that I was in foster care and all of that, you know, like even if like that should be more of a reason to give someone something, but here I am fighting more for it. Not saying I'm entitled to it, you know, but that's just one of the roles. a foster care um, a child myself, you have a lot of restrictions placed on you. Um, you go through a lot of things emotionally that sometimes people can't come, like, come back from. In my dissertation, I was really um, wanting to find the young people who had overcome a lot of the trauma that comes along with going to the foster care system and finding those who were able to navigate specifically the college going process. And when talking with them, a lot of things were shed to light in terms of the number of movements and or placements that took place with young people moving from different counties or different schools over a short period of time. And so I myself went to three different middle schools Thankfully, I was able to only go to one high school, but imagine if I went to, I went to three different middle schools and how difficult it would be for me to, to develop relationships that were long lasting, that were trusting, that could support me in the absence of either mother or my father. Living with another family, you know, experiencing something that you don't personally have, um, they offer help, but in the same, in the same, since you know that it's not really like it's like you know they're reporting back to someone so it's like they're not really helping you it's kind of just like they're spying on you really um if you're in foster care system that you're moving on average 
four times while being in the system. How do I create relationships with my foster parents? How do I create relationships with my teachers, with my principals, with my peers, if I'm constantly moving? That takes a toll on you emotionally and mentally. Um, you don't get to do a lot of the things that other kids get to do. Um, for instance, if you wanted to go to a sleepover, you wouldn't be able to really, you'd have to go through a whole process of getting clearances and, you know, things like that. And it's just, it, it makes it a whole hard process or even as a child going to school and having to explain like, oh, as a, as a black child, who are they? Like, you know, living with a family that is white, um, how do you explain that? How do you tell people without telling people your situation, letting them know what's going on? My foster mother being Filipino and my foster dad being German and white, uh, it was kind of confusing and hard for me to, to know what I identified as for my black peers. It's like the older I got, the harder it was for me to be accepted by them as a black woman because I didn't know all of the songs they'd be singing or movie references or like TV show references, like Fresh Prince. I didn't get to watch all of those things, the things that they laugh about. I just didn't get it. Um, I was kind of seen as like different because I just couldn't relate to the things that came so easily to them. having been raised in black homes. So the foster care system truly is a band-aid to a much larger, larger problem within our society. And it is heavily populated, unfortunately, by a lot of black and brown people who exist. And the, the root of the issue is poverty. The root of the issue is a lack of access. The, the root of the issue is a lack of resources to support families who are undergoing issues. It's not to say that, you know, white youth are not a part of the foster system, but disproportionately black children are put into the foster care system because their parents are poor. Black foster youth will face additional barriers and challenges that many youth do not face. In 2016, there were over 436,000 children in the foster care system. 23% were African American. But in the United States, African Americans only make up 14% of the population. And in California, African-Americans only make up 6% of the population. So what does that mean? That means nationally, black children are over one and a half times represented in child welfare. And in California, almost four times overrepresented in child welfare. We break up the family. Now you're going to have children that are left to the system. And the system is going, the foster care system, you know, I'm glad that it's there. But if you have our children in a system that really does not care or nurture for them, it just provides the bare minimum. And then you age out at 18 and you're not provided the resources that you need, it creates another gap. And so, um, there definitely needs to be a look at the, the foster care system and making sure these homes that 
are providing the care aren't worse than juvenile hall or worse than the environment that they were removed from. If you wanted to own a foster care agency, it would be quite difficult for you. You don't have the resources or the capital to get it started. And then what they did um, was they created a rule. Uh, I forget the name of the rule right now. It, uh, it, it escapes me, but they made it so very difficult to get um, approved that I had to write a letter to the governor as a, as a member of this board asking the governor, Gavin Newsom, for more time. Because as a small independent foster care agency that actually cares about the kids that come through our system, we're not a corporate uh, foster care agency. Um, we weren't given any time or resources or support to meet the demands that they placed upon us that clearly any corporate agency could meet because they have the resources to do it, right? And um, the governor actually um, granted our request and we were able to you know, pass with flying colors and continue to serve the foster care community. I think that in, for a foster care program to really work, the people that own it and run it have to care. It goes back to the people in the system that we're talking about. The people make the system up, right? So you've got a bunch of corporations that could care less about what happened to these kids. They just know that they're going to get this amount of money for this amount of people on a consistent basis. And we'll deal with it, the fights and the AWOLs and the runaways, we'll deal with it as it comes and we'll just do whatever the best practice is for the industry standard. And you can look at it that way or you can care on a deeper level the way that we do um, with the foster care agency that we run. And so um, again, the people are complicit in making these systems work, not work, or remain the same. When we talk about the foster care system, we, we need to really talk about the systems that lead to young people being in the foster care system and that the foster care system in itself is not the problem. But let's address the root of the issues that, that lend or lead young people to the foster care system. I think the average community member would be shocked to know that in our children's shelter there are literally thousands of calls to the police to respond to children who are in crisis or who are being teenagers and that hundreds of those result in arrests. look into the deep layers of people's existence in terms of the leadership of this country and its whiteness, um, you start to really understand that the system um, are the people and that these people are not changing, that they are passing down generation by generation the same values, um, the same ethics, and the same morals. And those values and ethics and morals don't include Black Americans as human. Um, they don't include Black Americans as worthy. And and so you don't see real change. You don't see real policies. You see symbolism. For us to have a quote unquote African-American president but still be on the bottom cast of society helps you understand that that was pure symbolism and that the system is, is not interested. The people who are um, responsible for making the system go aren't really interested in real systemic change because they have the power to make it happen. Very similar to how we saw the stimulus checks just kind of roll out and you saw the power of government to, 
to get money into the hands of people. We know that the government had the power to pay reparations, to transform political agendas so that Black people are exempt from taxes, have free health care, um, are exempt from debt, and all of the, the many things that we are owed for building the country for free. They simply won't do it. By consistently refusing to reform its system, the United States continues to celebrate the era of slavery while simultaneously ignoring its heinous history of enslavement. It is for this reason that racial bias remains a serious problem and is a direct and lasting legacy of American slavery and our failure to deal with the history of racial injustice. On the next episode of No Church in the Wild, we will examine racial bias in the media and how it impacts the public's perception of African Americans.